0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39, if you want to follow along uh, with the PowerPoint notes, you can do so through Google Drive um, as those have already been posted. Last week we um, took a break from the Uh, narrative of Joseph because Moses does that in Genesis chapter 38 and instead turns attention towards Judah um, and the failures of Judah. Um, And we saw from a summary sentence standpoint last week, the longer we fail to deal with our sin, the more we fall into additional sin. Um, And that's certainly true for Judah. He doesn't deal with the sins that he commits against his brother Joseph, the hostility, the anger, the bitterness that leads to murderous intent that we see play itself out um, as they get rid of their brother Joseph. Um, but what we see in Genesis chapter 38 is thankfully we serve a God who is capable of rescuing us from the greatest of sins. And so while Judah allows himself to delve into uh, more and more sin, uh, what we see is God's grace in the story of Genesis chapter 38. We saw some purposes for the story because I told you it was a story riddled with scandal and embarrassment Um, But what we see in that story is God preserving the the messianic line regardless of how his people act, that God's promises are not directly tied to whether his people come through on their end of the covenant, that God has made a covenant to to bring about salvation through Jesus, and he does so regardless of Judah's obedience in the story. Uh, We saw that anyone can fall into sin, that Judah, who is eventually going to be the leader of that family who Christ would eventually come through uh, as an example to us, that anyone can fall into sin and fall prey to temptation, uh, that everyone can receive God's grace. We see Tamar being grafted into the messianic line despite her deception and despite uh, her um, sexual impurity within the story. We see Judah's name uh, written in heaven if we look ahead into into the book of Revelation. And so we can see that God's grace can be extended to anyone, And that sinners ultimately don't mess up God's plan. They are a part of his plan. And so, our application last week was in order to persevere, we must remember as believers today that we are capable of committing any sin, but that God is able to rescue us from every sin, meaning we take necessary steps to fight sin, but we should avoid despair when we stumble into sin. And so, last week is a story of sin. It's a story of grace and forgiveness and how God continues to work his plans despite man's failures. This week, In Genesis chapter 39, we see more victory than failure in light of Joseph and his integrity and his response to similar situations. We said that Judah found hardship and he responded inappropriately to hardship. He sought uh, comfort in his hardship uh, into an impure relationship with another woman. Um, Joseph is in the midst of hardship in chapter 39, has the opportunity to seek comfort uh, through a physical relationship with a woman, and instead he resists um, that temptation. And so in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 1, it says Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. If you're taking notes with us, our summary sentence for today. The Lord remains with believers at all times, allowing them to remain faithful in times of uncertainty, in times of temptation, and in times of hardship. Uh, This chapter, chapter 39, reminds us that the Lord remains with believers at all times, which gives us comfort and assurance that in times of uncertainty, we can remain faithful. In times of temptation, we can remain faithful. In times of hardship, we can remain faithful to him, knowing that he is with us in all of those uh, circumstances. For our kids, Jesus is always with us, even when it feels like he isn't. Jesus is always with us even when it feels like he isn't. The theme of this chapter, it's kind of bookended with this idea that the Lord is with Joseph every step of the way. In verse 2 of chapter 39, which we've already read, the Lord was with Joseph as he's brought down to Egypt. He's with him. If you go down to the end of chapter 39, as he's put into jail, falsely accused of something that he did not do, the Lord was with Joseph, verse 21 says. And so while we can, and we will today, highlight uh, the integrity of Joseph, and we'll talk about the good decision-making of Joseph and the example of Joseph, really the theme of this chapter is the fact that God is with Joseph every step of the way through this chapter. In the most uncertain of times, God is working for Joseph. It's that special omnipresence that we've talked about in the book of Genesis that yes, God is with all, all creation at all times, obviously, whether you're a believer or not a believer, God's omniscience and, and omnipresence and omnipotence, it, it's all over the place. Doesn't doesn't just uh, apply to believers, it's for believers and unbelievers. God is everywhere and his power is always working and his knowledge is always made evident. But when it comes to believers, there's a specific understanding that God is specially with believers and he's working in a special way for believers, for their good, and so for us as believers, uh, we can take assurance from that in this chapter that that God was with Joseph and He's with us today as well. Joseph understands that God's presence with remains with him. Um, the The encouragement that we see, obviously, is that that God is with Joseph, but there seems to be an understanding by Joseph that God is with him throughout this chapter as well. I don't think he's completely oblivious that God is working in the midst of these circumstances. Um, the fact that he gives credit to his success in Potiphar's house lends us to believe that he understood God was with him because Potiphar doesn't have a knowledge of Joseph's God unless Joseph tells him. And so Joseph seems to give credit and, um, to, to God for his success. And so Joseph's aware that, hey, I'm in Egypt, but God is obviously with me. He's allowing me to succeed in this environment. Um, as he uh, dialogues with Potiphar's wife, He tells her, he says, I can't do this. This would be a sin before God, the very God that I believe that is with me in the midst of this temptation. And then even towards the end of the chapter, we see the way that he picks himself up and responds after being obedient and doing the right thing and then getting punished and put into prison. He doesn't skip a beat, right? He just keeps working hard and keeps rising to power even in the midst of the prison. And so there's this understanding that Joseph is not oblivious. He's not working independently of God's presence. Joseph seems to be very keenly aware that God remains with him and is working things for his good. Just to give you a little timetable of Joseph's life, he's about 18 at the beginning of this chapter when he enters Egypt. By the end of this chapter, he's around 28 when he's imprisoned. So it takes about 10 years, 10, 11 years for him to be sold to Potiphar and then rise to power and then fall uh, into the accusations of Potiphar's wife. So not an overnight success story probably. It's not that Joseph showed up day one and Potiphar's like, wow, you're the best worker I've ever seen after one day of work. Let's make you in charge of everything. And then all of a sudden Potiphar's wife is tempting him. This was, this was uh, over the course of uh, maybe a decade. Um, and it may have been three, four, five years before anybody really even noticed his hard work. Um, and then he's going to spend two years in prison where he's forgotten about before he even comes to power in Egypt when he comes before Pharaoh and interprets dreams. So just to give you a little timetable of how this is working itself out, because we can read through chapter 39 in in less than five minutes, and we're covering the course of a decade probably for his life. All right, Um, so we start in our notes with, "'The Lord is with us in uncertainty and prosperity.'" The Lord is with us in uncertainty and prosperity. For our kids, when things are going good, Jesus is with us. We've already read here at the beginning of chapter 39 that Joseph is sold into uh, Egypt. Verse 2 tells us very clearly the Lord is with Joseph. He becomes a successful man. He's in the house of his Egyptian master, Master sees him, sees his work ethic, sees his diligence, and begins to give him more and more responsibilities. Joseph finds favor in his sight, and he's made overseer of the whole house. And it, put, and it says in uh, verse 4, he puts him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Verse six, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. The Lord is with us in uncertainty. Joseph had certainly a lot of uncertain feelings probably coming into Egypt after being sold by his brothers. Doesn't know what his future holds. He remembers he's had dreams about leading his brothers and and being in, in an important position, but now he's a slave in Egypt. There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding his future. But he goes to work, and he works hard, and he's diligent, and he rises to power and, and experiences prosperity, and everything that he touches seems to turn to gold, and, and everything that he's doing is successful, and, and people start to pick up on that, and he's very quick to give credit to God for his success story. Um, so number one in our, in our notes, believers have the responsibility to work hard despite circumstances. Believers have the responsibility to work hard despite circumstances. Now think about this, this isn't Joseph showing up in Egypt and automatically just falling into a position that he's already good at, right? Like it's not that Joseph already had this skill set and all these abilities and it's, hey, we got lucky, we bought this guy who already knows how to do all this stuff. Remember, Joseph's a shepherd. Remember we referenced last week or two weeks ago that the Egyptians hate shepherds. They don't, they don't, they don't do that, um, And so what Joseph would have been tasked to do, the things that he was doing for Potiphar, most likely things that he'd never really done before. Why is that significant? Because it wasn't that just Joseph showed up and just started doing what he'd always been doing, right? Like he's not a a lawyer that he got transferred to being a lawyer in a different place. He's not a teacher who gets transferred to being a teacher in a different place. He's a shepherd who's now asked to do things that are completely unshepherd-like, and he's great at it. He becomes really successful at it. And and the text applies the fact that this is God doing it, but I don't think we should minimize what Joseph had to do to actually get to this point too. Like God doesn't just allow Joseph to be successful without Joseph putting forth some effort himself. This is Joseph being very attentive in staff meetings. This is Joseph being very diligent to get up early and maybe stay late. This is Joseph being very diligent to ask questions and to seek wisdom from those that have been in Potiphar's house for a while. This is Joseph saying, you know what? I'm gonna be the best slave possible, right? The New Testament talks about when we are uh, bought into salvation, that we continue to serve faithfully in whatever condition we were bought in. Um, and that if, if you're a slave, you continue to work hard in your circumstances, your situations, you continue to apply yourself and do your best. And that seems to be what Joseph does here. He shows no signs of bitterness or desires for revenge. When we were talking uh, in C groups this past Wednesday, I made the point, I said, as Joseph becomes more and more powerful and more and more in charge of things, he's obviously able to delegate things because now he's in charge. It would have been very easy for Joseph to say, hey, I gotta run into town and get some stuff and then never come back. And say, you know what, I'm heading home. I've got vengeance on my mind. I'm going back to get my brothers. I'm going back to tell dad that I'm alive and that they did this to me. I mean, at some point, he's no longer bound in shackles. He's no longer under the supervision because Potiphar says, wow, I'm just gonna give you everything. I'm not gonna even check up on you. Like you've been so diligent and so faithful. I'm just gonna turn this whole thing over to you. I'm gonna show up and eat dinner when it's ready. And, and everything else kind of you. You're going to kind of run everything. Pot- Potiphar has basically given over everything to Joseph. It would have been very easy for Joseph to say, see ya, I'm heading back home. Like, this has been great. It's been a nice decade, but I'm going back to get to what I'm supposed to be. Like, I'm, I've got an inheritance waiting for me. I'm supposed to be the lead dog back home. I'm out of here. And he doesn't do that, right? He stays He stays because I believe he understands that God's doing something here. He stays and does his job well. He works in such a way that those over him can trust him to get the job done without having to check up on him. And that's huge, especially for one like me who understands how difficult it can be to have to manage people underneath you and have to check up on them and make sure they're doing their job constantly. Joseph has this mindset where he says, if you give me something to do, you don't have to check to see if I've done it yet. You don't don't have to check up on me. I'm so diligent. I I have my to-do list organized. I've got everything ready to go. When you give me an assignment, you can trust that it's gonna get done. You don't have to check to see if it's been done or not. I mean, that ought to be be something that just resonates with all of us because we all have situations where we've been given tasks to do, whether we work a job or whether it's simply responsibilities we have at home. Joseph is a great example to us here of a man who says, if it's been told to, to be done to me, It's going to be done. You don't have to check up and remind me and enforce it to me that it get done. Um, I mean, he just goes to work right from day one and becomes this entrusted employee who does everything that is asked of him. His hard work leads to greater opportunities and responsibilities. And this is is true for us as well. In, In our workplaces, as we respond faithfully, as we work hard, as we show that we can be trusted, more often than not, opportunities and greater responsibilities come our way. And this really validates what dad did when he gave him the coat of many colors. Because remember we said that was a a sign of authority and a sign of leadership and a sign of management. It wasn't just that he was favored simply because he was Rachel's kid. It's Joseph's probably the best son that I have to be the leader of the family. Um, And he shows that here in Egypt. He shows that he's a faithful, hard worker. He works in such a way that others are blessed by his employment. The Bible says that Potiphar's house is blessed because of Joseph. It says that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Can you think of anyone else that benefited from god's person or god's people being in in his household and him experiencing blessing that we've already talked about in genesis who else experienced a similar rise in productivity simply because god was blessing the individual that was in his house laban so laban has the benefit of jacob coming and working for him and remember we said that essentially laban's business just takes off because jacob is there and god's blessing jacob and that spills over into laban um Bible says that, that I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going I'm to take care of those who are taking care of you. And so as Potiphar responds to Joseph and gives him more responsibilities and takes care of him, God is blessing Potiphar's house. And you know, and it got me to thinking, and um, as I was studying just the fact that, okay, we should be employees like Joseph, we should be employees that, when something's given to us, it gets done, and, and we don't have to be checked up on all the time. But then secondly, wherever we work, wherever we have responsibilities, it should be a better place because we're there, right? Like that that place of employment should benefit. If we're believers with God's blessing upon us, that place should be better off because we are there. Not because we're uniquely special, but because God is at work in our life and blessing us and they should be the recipients of the spillage over of our own blessings in our life. Joseph is that for Egypt. He's that specifically for Potiphar's house. God says, I'm blessing Potiphar, taking care of Potiphar. Potiphar, you just get the benefit of having Joseph in your house and you're gonna be blessed accordingly. And we don't have any indication that the blessing continued after Joseph was put in prison. We don't know what happened to Potiphar and his household. It's likely that the production dipped. It's likely that's why Potiphar was so angry when this whole accusation came out that there was probably some ties to the fact that, hey, that was my wife and you may have been uh, going after her, but secondly, I gotta get rid of you and you've been the best employee I've ever had. I'm gonna have to go back to doing things, right? Because I've, I've given you everything and now I'm gonna have to start working again. Joseph gets put in prison. What happens in prison? The prison starts prospering, right? Like the, the, the head jailer's like, wow, I struck gold. Like I can just give everything to this prisoner and I don't have to do anything. Um, we should be that type of employee. Wherever we work, wherever we find ourselves at, it should be a better place because we're there. We should be the best employees. We should have the best work ethic. People should pride themselves or desire and and find pride in the fact that when they hire believers, it's the best hires they make. The work ethic, the attitude, the the blessing that seemingly comes from that, all of that should come from wherever we're finding ourselves working. Um, Number two, so believers have the responsibility to work hard despite circumstances. Number two, believers have the responsibility to give credit to God for their successes. Potiphar's able to see clearly the source of Joseph's success. Joseph doesn't seem to hide this at all, doesn't seem to veil it at all. Potiphar's probably pulling him aside and saying, hey, how can I get the same production out of other people? Like, what's what's special about you? Why do you have this attitude? Why are you as a slave seemingly going above and beyond the call of duty, right? Like you're not just doing the bare minimum like I'm typically used to slaves doing. You're not just looking for uh, the list of things that you have to do. You're asking for more things to do. Well, why is that? And so Joseph gets to have conversations with Potiphar. I mean, the text is very clear. Potiphar knew the source of success, Potiphar knew why this was going well. Um, and it's a testimony to Joseph and, and, and the conversations that he was having and the example that he was setting. The implications for us from this section believers should strive to find ways to glorify God in spite of their circumstances. No matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we should find ways to glorify God in the midst of them. Again, let's don't romanticize this. Joseph has been kidnapped, essentially. I mean, he's been sold into slavery, but due to his brothers getting rid of him, so this is not, uh, it's not due to any of his actions. This is against his will. He's been separated from his family, been separated from his father, uh, been separated from everything that he knows. He's been banished to a culture, to a country that he doesn't know the language, he doesn't know the people, doesn't have any friends. Um, this isn't this isn't of his own choosing, and it's in that context where he works his tail off, and, and rises to power, and 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 God responds to his obedience and to his work ethic and allows that to prosper and be successful. And Joseph's very quick to give the credit for the success to God. It'd been easy for him to try to steal that for himself, right? He could have easily had the mindset that I was abandoned by God. He's not for me. He's against me. And yet he's very quick to turn attention to God for his successes. For us as believers, we should find similar ways to glorify God in spite of our circumstances. Number two, the Lord is with us in temptation. For our kids, when we are tempted to sin, Jesus is with us. The Lord is with us in temptation so this the stage, the stage is set in chapter 39 for the temptation that Joseph experiences it says that he had no concern about anything talking about Potiphar but the food he ate now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said lie with me you can almost see God's hand of direction even in this part right here Joseph didn't choose his looks. He didn't choose uh, his appearance. But that seems to be the, the sole reason that she's attracted to him. right? So God could have easily in his foreknowledge looked ahead and say, let's make Joseph not all that great looking um, so that he wouldn't be attractive and garner this attention and this temptation. But text is very clear. Hey, his physical appearance that he did not choose is what leads into this temptation. right? And says that that she she casts her eyes at him and she desires him Uh, and wants him because of this form and appearance that he possesses. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We talked this morning in our discussion groups about some of the excuses that Joseph could have used to give in to this temptation. Um, there's a lot of things that I that I started to think of. Just the fact that um he could easily argue that this is something that he deserved. Um, right? Like uh, I've been doing good for a long time, and this is something that I'm that I'm owed. Because he he's potentially been doing this for almost a decade now. Right? So 10 years I've been working hard, I've been doing my best, I've been rising to power and where's god been in all this right he could have easily fallen prey to his pride and felt like this is this is my wage for all the obedience that i've done i've been i've been good for 10 years i've been pure for 10 years in the midst of egypt's culture i've done no wrong in 10 years he could have easily had that mindset and said you know what this this is this is due me this is this is owed to me um it's a it's a sin that would potentially be done in secret um as the actual temptation plays out it says, um, verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment. could have easily been excused away in that nobody's going to really even know about it. Um, some other things that I wrote down, it was a natural appetite that was not being met for him. It's likely that he was prohibited from even pursuing marriage in a family due to his slavery condition. Um, we don't know exactly when he gets married, but um, it could have easily been excused away in the sense that, hey, this is how God made me, these are the desires that God's given me, and this is the only outlet for me to see those desires met. Um, it's something that wouldn't go away. There was persistence in the temptation. It says that, she spoke to Joseph day after day about this. This wasn't a missed opportunity for him, right? Like this wasn't one-time thing where, whoo, I got out of that one. This was something that came back every single day. This is something that when he left work and went to wherever he spent the night, he could easily say, gosh, like she's, the last five days she's proposed this to me. The last month she's proposed this to me. At some point, that would start to wear on his decision-making and his character, potentially. Could have easily been excused in that, hey, I resisted this for a month, for two months, and it just wouldn't go away, and I finally just couldn't say no anymore. Like, it was just forefront every single day. I couldn't go to work without being confronted with this, and and I, I resisted as long as I could. But it's day after day he resists, the Bible tells us, He was already already doing everything else better than Potiphar. Why not be a better man for her as well? He could have easily fallen into this idea of, I mean, Potiphar's in charge, but who's doing things around here? Like, it's me. Bible says that everything had been given to him. So really, Joseph could take credit for, for all the success if he wanted to. He could have easily said, you know what? Potiphar has failed. He couldn't get by without me. He could have easily allowed that to translate into that marital relationship. That, that her needs weren't being met. She wasn't being taken care of. Obviously, there's something missing for her to then try to pursue something outside of that marriage relationship. He could have justified or tried to excuse this based on those grounds. He didn't have encouragement from others to resist. I mean, I don't think he goes back to the other slaves at night when they get off work and says, You guys aren't going to believe this. Like, I need y'all to pray for me. Um, the, the master's wife is just tempting me constantly. Those other guys would be like, What are you thinking? Like, why are you saying no to that? Like, there, there was no encouragement. There was no spiritual uplifting for him. He separated from everybody that would have had that moral compass that would say say no to that. All these other guys at the end of the day would have been like, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you not giving into that? All, all this stuff stacked against him, right? Like, all this stuff is stacked against him. He, he's in awful situations where it looks like God may have abandoned him, He's he's working his tail off and not really seeing reward for that from a a release standpoint. He's still under bondage. He's still under Potiphar's control. She's coming at him constantly, day after day after day. It's not a one-time thing, not a missed opportunity. It's day after day persistence, and he's constantly having to battle and say no. Number two, or number one, believers must resist the opportunity to make excuses. So excuses could have been made. Joseph doesn't make excuses, and he doesn't give in to this temptation. For us as believers, when we're faced with temptation, we too must resist the opportunity to make excuses. And this is hard because oftentimes when you are dealing with someone who's fallen into sin, and this, is, this can certainly be applicable for our accountability groups, it's easy to pick up on people making excuses for their choices to sin. And believers have to resist those excuses. We have to resist the temptation to make excuses for our actions. Number two, believers must rely upon predetermined standards to guide their actions. Believers must rely upon predetermined standards to guide their actions. As you're writing that down, what are some of the things you guys discussed in discussion groups this morning about what factors led him to resisting this temptation? Was there any, any principles that we can see that would help us model it in our own life when we're faced with temptation? How to say no to temptation? Anything at all that you see there? Okay, so he keeps this big picture mindset that his actions would ultimately be offensive to God. What else? What are some other principles that we can see here? If we were Instructing our kids about resisting temptation or instructing someone in our accountability group about resisting temptation. What are some principles that we can potentially see here? Okay. God's prior faithfulness is something that he could draw upon in the midst of this temptation, knowing that he'd taken care of Him in the past, he would continue uh, to do so. Let me give you a couple of things that... um, that I see in, in his words that he uses as to why he's not going to do this. Um, it says in verse 8, He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. First thing I wrote down is that his relationship to Potiphar prevented him from sinning. His relationship to Potiphar prevented him from sinning. He he communicates the fact that this is a man who's trusted me. I'm not going to violate his trust. So while he's got the big picture idea that his sin is against God, he doesn't also forget the fact that his sin would also be against man, a, a man who has trusted him, a, a, an unbeliever who has put faith and trust in him, that to sin in this way would, would violate and would destroy all of his testimony to this guy. And, and he doesn't lose sight of that. He doesn't lose sight of the fact that, that my sin affects other people. And, and I think sometimes we forget that as believers. Sometimes we're very quick to say, okay, I know my sin is against God, and God and I will deal with that, and I'll confess and get forgiveness from God. But I think sometimes we go to the other side, and we forget that our sin affects other people that in the midst of us desiring happiness and thinking, okay, this this act or this thing will will satisfy me, and and if it doesn't, then God and I can work that out, that we don't realize that sometimes giving into that hurts other people, right? Because if he does this, this breaks up Potiphar and his wife's relationship. Maybe they have kids involved as well. There would have been brokenness and hurt caused by his actions, and he communicates to her and says, I can't do this because of Potiphar and his trust for me. But secondly, his relationship to Potiphar's wife prevented him from sinning. Why? Because he saw her as belonging to someone else. He he never allows him to see her as an opportunity. He never allows himself to see her as a potential. He he never allows that. So, So when we talk about individuals who fall into affairs and adultery, at some point, they stop seeing the other person as belonging to their spouse. And all of a sudden they're available because of their discontentment in the marriage. They are potential because of their discontentment in the marriage. And, and Joseph never allows himself to go there. He continues to remind himself, you're his wife, you're his wife, you're his wife, you're his wife. He, he doesn't allow himself to, uh, to distance himself from that relationship. It says that he wouldn't even entertain the idea. It says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. He would not lie beside her. And he would not be with her. To me, the principles here are he's trying to get away from any conversations with her, he's trying to get away from any relationship with her, any time spent with her. He's trying to cut that off. He doesn't take this, this, I can handle this approach of, hey, you know, I'll be friends with her. I'll have deep conversations with her. You know, we'll, we'll play around with this idea. I'm not gonna give into this, but I'm gonna make this even harder on myself by pursuing it in a way where it's not really sinful. You can't really label it as sinful. I'm, I'm just, hey, it's my, my boss's wife. You know, like I need to have a good relationship with both of them. He doesn't take that kind of approach. The Bible seems to say that he, I mean, he just works hard to cut it all off. Now she keeps coming after him, right? But he's not going to entertain it at all. Wouldn't listen to her, wouldn't spend time with her, wouldn't go near her. I can't help but think of Adam in the Garden of Eden when he says, um, he's kept back, he hasn't kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife, right? That's similar language to what, what Adam and Eve were given in the Garden of Eden, right? Like, nothing's been held back from you. No tree is off limits except for the one tree. And that's the one that they couldn't do without. Joseph seems to look at her and say, I don't need you. Like everything else in this house has been given to me except you. And there's valid reason for that because you belong to him. I don't even have to entertain this idea. I'm, I'm so satisfied and content with what's been given to me by God, by Potiphar. The one thing that I can't have is the one thing that I don't need you belong to him, that you're off limits. You're not even a possibility. He's a better Adam. He functions as a better Adam. Everything given to him but one thing and he resists the one thing. Ultimately, though, it's his relationship to God that prevents him from sinning, right? He says, look, I've been entrusted by Potiphar. I can't violate his trust. You're his wife. But then as um, Ryan was saying, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He understood the reality of the act as wickedness before God. He says, I can't do it. 1 John 3, 9 says that if you're truly a believer and been born into the Spirit, you can't go on sinning. I mean, he basically says, I can't do this. Like It's not even really possible for me. I'm not going to give in to this. Um, what's crazy is that if you study the, the language that's used here, it really leads you to believe that Joseph found the whole idea of this repulsive. And I don't think it's because she was an ugly woman. I think, he, had, I think he, was, he was so in love with God, so content with God, so satisfied with the promises of God. What I don't think you have is a picture of Joseph sitting alone saying, I wish I could. Wow, I wish I could. Instead, you have this picture of, I don't want to do this. Like, like, this is a temptation, yes, and I'm having to fight it, yes. But what's most true, what seems to be most true in this situation is him being repulsed at the idea because of how wicked it would be against God. And I think we fall short in our fight against sin if we're content to stay at this level where I'm basically just caged from being able to do what I really want to do. I just know that it's wrong to do that. Like we don't have this picture of Joseph saying, "I wish, I wish, I hey, hey, I wish I could, I wish I could, I just, I, I'm just not going to because it's wrong." Instead, you have this 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 picture of him saying, "No, no, you can ask me every day for the rest of my life, and it's always going to be no. This is wrong. This is wicked, and that's how we should see sin in our own life. When temptation comes our way, as we're growing and maturing spiritually, the draw to sin ought to decrease." The attractiveness of sin should lose its luster. Um, the, the language that he used here seems to be that the temptation is not really building upon itself for him. Some implications for us. First of all, we must remember that our sin is both hurtful to man and offensive to God. I think both relationships factor into his ability to resist. We must remember that our sin is both hurtful to man and offensive to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, which leads to the second implication. We must remember that our temptation is not unique. You get this sometimes when you're talking with somebody and and they're potentially making some excuses for why they continue to struggle with the sin. And, and sometimes it comes out in that conversation that they believe in some form or fashion that their situation is unique. Well, it's different? You don't understand. You don't get it. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You know, we're told in 1 Corinthians that it's not unique. It's not different. It's common. It's common that, that you're not the, the, the only person dealing with this. That this is a common situation. This is a common temptation. No temptation is not common. Nobody's unique and different. We all experience a need to fight sin. Secondly, we must remember that our temptation is not extreme. Meaning that we can't make the excuse that there's an inability to resist it. Because what we're told here is that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability. So... Nobody can lay claim to the fact that their temptation is unique or that it's so difficult that the possibilities of saying no to it don't exist because there's no way that God would allow that to happen according to this passage. He doesn't take us to a point where we're tempted beyond our ability to resist. We're not extreme in our temptations. And then lastly, we're not hopeless in our temptations. God protects us in our temptation, meaning that he doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're capable of handling. And he provides victory for us in our temptation. With every temptation that comes our way, he also provides a way of escape that we wouldn't be able to endure it. Even to the point of imprisonment, right? Because Joseph could have easily said, hey, not my call. She's my master's wife. Like I'm obligated to do whatever those guys say. And what else was I gonna do? I couldn't call upon help. Nobody else was in the house at the time. It was just her and he could have anticipated, if I don't do this, I'm gonna end up in prison because she could easily twist this and say I didn't obey her and didn't do what she told me to do, and she could easily paint this, and maybe she was even threatening that, right? Like, maybe she's even threatening, hey, if you don't do this, if you don't say yes to me, I'll twist this and make your life awful. He could have easily excused his actions and said, you know what? Like, I didn't have any other choice. Like, that's the kind of stuff you hear sometimes when you're counseling somebody through sin. What else was I supposed to do? Like this woman screaming at me day after day after day and and I didn't know what else to do. I had to give in to this. The Bible says there's always a way of an escape. And you know what? Even if it means having, having the clothes ripped off and leaving those behind and fleeing the house and being imprisoned falsely for it. At the end of the day, temptation wasn't yielded to, right? At the end of the day, wickedness did not happen from Joseph's end of things. He did not violate Potiphar's trust. He did not take another man's wife. Right? He resisted to the point of imprisonment. He found the way of escape. And I put in my notes here, to argue otherwise is to doubt the promises of God. We need to be very careful in the language that we use when we're talking about our temptation and our sinful tendencies and our needs to confess that we do not attack the promises of God in some of the things that we say. To try to say that our temptation is unique or extreme or that there potentially wasn't any other way is to attack the promises of God, to attack the assurance of this verse that God never gives us anything that's unique to us and nobody else has had to endure it. He never gives us anything that we're not capable of enduring, and he never gives us anything where we can't escape it. And to have language in our conversations that would allude to otherwise is to attack the promises of God here. Number three, the Lord is with us in hardship. For our kids, when things are going bad, Jesus is still with us. The Lord is with us in hardship. He obviously says no to her, resists her, makes her mad. She grabs, his, grabs at his clothing. He's running around without it. And she's left to come up with something because she's going to have to give an account for why she has his garment. And so she goes to work right away. It says, As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master Potiphar came home. She told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought out among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me fled out of the house as believers we should expect false accusations due to our obedience believers should expect false accusations due to their obedience we see this throughout the new testament that we should expect this type of treatment that in in light of doing good we'll experience persecution potentially specifically for joseph he's falsely accused based on his nationality potiphar's wife accuses him about his race right, to both the servants and to Potiphar, she draws upon his nationality and says, it's the Hebrew, it's the one who's not like us that's guilty in this situation. And so really paints this picture from a racial type standpoint that, hey, it's the guy that you brought in and trusted who's not like us, and so she attacks her husband's uh, ability to lead um, and really paints him in a negative light to both the servants and to himself says, you failed here. You brought a guy in who's of a different country, different race. What else did you expect from this animal? This, this guy's not like us. He's a Hebrew. Really paints him in a negative light and, and kind of leaves Potiphar without a choice from his standpoint that um, he's got to do something here in response. And it's possible that he's unconvinced of Joseph's guilt, but his own pride caused him to allow the punishment. So there's a lot of speculation from commentators that... Um, That he's mad, says that he gets mad. It says, as soon as his master's heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. But a lot of people speculate that he's not really mad at Joseph. He's more mad at her because he knew her character and knew that this meant he couldn't have Joseph be his top servant anymore. Um, I think it's supported even by the fact that in his anger, he's taken and put into the prison where the king's prisoners are confined. uh, And he was there in prison that he doesn't execute him right away, which means, you know, if he really had believed this, he probably would have put him to death, and maybe this is an indication that he didn't fully believe her story. Um, it's kind of similar to uh, Pilate in the New Testament, where Jesus is tried, and, and Pilate's kind of left saying, I don't really think that you're guilty, but gosh, in my position, I got to do something here, so I'm going to turn you over to crucifixion, because I don't want to be seen as the guy who let you off. It's kind of like what Potiphar, think, I think, is dealing with here. It's I don't know if you're, you really did this or not, but I'm just gonna have to go with it because I'm too prideful to, to say otherwise. And so he turns him over and this is all part of God's good plan, right? We've talked about this. The fact that he ends up in this prison and not a slave prison allows him to come in contact with Pharaoh here in a couple of chapters. If he's put in any other prison, he's, he dies there probably. He doesn't interact with the baker and the butler and he doesn't interpret their dreams and he doesn't end up in Pharaoh's uh, court right potiphar doesn't have any reason to think that he can interpret dreams right potiphar could have caught wind of this hey pharaoh had a dream doesn't know what it means and potiphar would have been like "Hmm? joseph i mean why would i think of joseph joseph's never interpreted dreams for me this is all god working this for his for uh, his glory and for the good of joseph for the good of the israelite nation number two believers should accept trials as god acting in love Don't lose sight of what's told to us in verse 21. It says he's put into prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He's with him in the hardship, right? The temptation, the devil wants us to believe that in our trials and difficulties, God doesn't love us, that God's not with us, that God doesn't care. And yet we're told very explicitly here, Joseph is in prison and the Lord is with him and God is showing steadfast love to him and he gives him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison whatever was done there he was the one who did it keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did the Lord made it to succeed God remains with Joseph in prison. God comforts Joseph in prison, gives him a light and a hope to cling to. Doesn't just abandon him there, but it continues to work good for him in the midst of his imprisonment. Implication for us, believers must strive to avoid suffering for doing evil and must seek contentment when suffering for doing good. Right? We talked about this in our C groups on Wednesday night. What's the difference between suffering for good and suffering for evil? Here's the truth. At the end of the day, if, he's, if, he, if he takes advantage of Potiphar's wife, he probably ends up in prison. Like odds are that comes out eventually and Potiphar would have put him in prison. So at the end of the day, he's going to prison regardless, whether he resists or whether he gives into the temptation. The difference being in one instance, he's suffering for doing evil. And the Bible talks about the fact that when the Lord disciplines us, that's painful and hard. And what's even more difficult about it is that it could have been avoided. God's discipline can be avoided when we're seeking obedience. We don't have to be disciplined and, and, and addressed by God for our sin if we're making good choices. We can alleviate that suffering. The other suffering that comes is part of God's plan, and it's meant to grow our faith and challenge us. And we can suffer for doing good. So in our group, we were talking about the fact that suffering for evil that can be avoided, that's brought on by us. That's something that God has to step in and say no. The other is something that God very intently for good reasons brings upon us. And so there's hope and encouragement in saying, hey, you know what, I'm sitting here doing the right thing and God has bigger plans in play for him to allow me to suffer in this. I didn't do this, I didn't bring this upon myself. This is God with some bigger plan than I understand right now. And that's what Joseph experiences here. He's being punished for doing good. He's being punished for doing good. So the, the last question we discussed this morning, why would God allow him to be punished for doing the right thing? I think we have to get out of the mentality, the, the incentive mentality that I do things to get things from God, right? Like that's kid stuff, right? Like, hey, if you'll do this, you'll get a piece of candy for this, right? And God's got a bigger picture at play here. So it's not, uh, God, I said no to that woman all those days. Like, what do I get for that? I was like, you're not a kid anymore, right? Like you're an adult. Um, and, and my plans are bigger than just giving you some cheap trinket for saying no to this woman. Because I'm about to put you in power of Egypt. Um, and, and the road's difficult to get there. And so God has a bigger picture at play. He's got a bigger plan at play than even Joseph understands. We have to remember that too for our own lives, that we shouldn't expect little obedience to generate little rewards back from him that sometimes we are led into suffering for doing good. And it's for good purposes, as we talked about on Wednesday night, for good purposes. And sometimes it brings other people to salvation as they they fight against us and ridicule against us. They're put to shame because we suffer well for doing good. The application for us this morning, while our faithfulness is not always met with immediate reward, we can take comfort in knowing that our reward is certain to come. All right, so Joseph doesn't get any type of immediate reward for saying no. But Matthew chapter 5 draws our attention to the great reward that is to come. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I mean, that's Joseph, right? He's persecuted for righteousness' sake. His brothers hate him for for being the chosen son. He's persecuted for it. And then he's reviled and persecuted by Potiphar's wife and, utter, and uttered uh, she uttered all kinds of evil against him falsely. Verse 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This should be encouraging to us. That Joseph is a man who acts in integrity all through this chapter and doesn't get a cheap reward at the end of it. Right? His reward is to come. His faithfulness will be honored in, in days ahead. He kept to the path. He kept to the plan. He kept doing what he was supposed to be doing. In the midst of uncertainty, he worked hard. He worked hard and set a great example and was the best employee that Potiphar had ever had. Worked his way up. And then for doing right, he was falsely accused. But it was his mindset that sin hurts other people. Sin hurts God. Sin is offensive towards God. I'm not going to yield to it. In fact, it's not even attractive to me. I don't even want to do this. And then when he's punished, instead of rewarded for his good behavior, he continues to do the same right thing, continues to pursue faithfulness. And Jesus, Jesus reminds us that those who do this, those who live and function this way, their reward is yet to come. Um, for our family worship discussion questions this week, I want to draw your attention to two things, um, especially for those that have kids this week. We've talked a lot recently about God allowing bad to happen to, to his people. Um, for our kids, it is, it is pertinent that as our kids are growing and developing, that they have a good grasp on why bad things happen to good people. Because this is one of the leading causes for why people wander and walk away from the faith. Because they end up in Egypt, or they end up in prison. And they're throwing their hands up and saying, where's my trinket? Where's my reward? Where, where's my gift for doing the right thing? I've been faithful. Where, where's, the, where's the stuff that's owed to me now for being faithful? So I want us to, to have some time in our families this week to discuss why does God allow bad things to happen to his people? And number two, what are some of the ways that God provides for us to escape temptation? Drawing upon stories in the Bible, drawn upon stories in our own personal lives. The Bible says that he always makes a way of escape for his people. Let's talk a little bit in our families with our kids and identify some of those ways. Anytime I'm disciplined, a kid in my office, I'm at school, when they're brought in, I always have them walk me through the whole situation. All right, what happened? You know, What led to you feeling the way that you did? What led to you acting the way that you did? And so we kind of walk through that and you hear the excuses and the validations for the behavior and and then I always stop and say, now let's think back, how could that have gone differently to where you wouldn't be in here right now? And so we we role play and we walk through, you could have done this differently. You could have acted differently here. You could have gotten someone else involved before you allowed it to escalate to this point. Why? Because I want them to see the way of escape. I want them to see that this could have gone differently. You didn't have to take up my time and your time to sit down in my office and us have to talk about this situation. This could have been averted. This could have been, this could have been avoided. Um, so I want us to have some conversations with our kids this week too about how God does provide the ways of escape for temptation, maybe even through practical things this week that happen in your family. Uh, maybe you can sit down and draw upon ways that those things could have gone uh, differently so they can help, you can help them see that the escape has been made available. It's just a matter of seeing it, recognizing it, and taking it. Okay, so why do bad things happen to good people? And then what are some ways that God provides escape routes for us from temptation? Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you so much uh, for the example of Joseph. Uh, we certainly want um, to give attention to his life and his choices and his decision-making because we can certainly learn a lot from it. So God, I pray that you would, um, you would help us this week in the context that we, uh, we live in um, to, to model and to follow after the example that he set in, in his own workplace. Um, God, that we would be the type of people, because we're believers in you, we would be the type of people who work hard and uh, strive to be the best employees possible, that we're the type of people who our bosses don't have to check up on us to make sure we're doing the right thing and and doing the jobs that have been given to us, that we would we would show our faithfulness. God, that we'd be the type of people who bring blessing upon our place of employment simply by being there and working hard and uh, allowing the blessings that you give to us to spill over into that environment. And God, I pray, I pray that as we are faithful to do the right thing, help us to remember that oftentimes when we're in the midst of doing the right thing is when we get hit with temptation hardest. Um, so God, help us to remember that Joseph didn't do anything to bring upon this temptation. He was he was putting in checks and measures in his life to avoid temptation, and yet the temptation came headstrong upon him. God, I pray that we'd resist temptation this week as believers, that we would see the escape route, that we would see that you've given us the ability to say no, that you've given us um, the, the examples of others who have experienced similar temptations to learn from, that we're not unique, that it's not an extreme case where saying no is impossible, that you've given us the, uh, the, the supernatural ability to fight sin and to uh, withdraw ourselves from sin. And God, help us to connect the fact that, that our sinful choices hurt people, um, that it's not isolated, um, that we don't get to pursue sinful happiness without it uh, causing uh, havoc for others. So God, help us to connect that the way that Joseph did and help us to, to see ultimately that our sins are an offense against you. And Lord, I pray that as we potentially are falsely accused for doing good and um, as we seek to be faithful and are seemingly repaid with evil, um, God, that we wouldn't throw our hands up in disgust at you for not giving us what we think we're deserved for our obedience. God, help us to instead see that there's a big picture, there's a big plan at play, and that oftentimes it includes suffering. And so, God, help us not to forfeit our faith and um, wander from perseverance because we're dissatisfied with not being rewarded temporarily here and now for our obedience. Help us instead to yield to your words in Matthew that we're blessed for, for persecution and for suffering and Ultimately, our reward is to come when Jesus returns and help that to, to carry us through this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.